talking about Nehemiah. Nehemiah has everything to do with the building of a wall. Why was that wall important? We've been talking about it. The wall was important because an ancient city without a wall, without a wall around it, without gates, was continually vulnerable to being overrun. And therefore, one would live with a low-grade sense of fear and paranoia. Nehemiah has a burden to see a wall built around the city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. He wants to see his people prosper. For generations, they have not known what it was to have that kind of security. He has a dream that God put into his heart to see that city move to a place where they can begin again to be what God had intended them for, to be. And so he makes this journey, and he starts to get them to build the wall, and, and it's a great time of excitement about it. People are believing. We talked about it, how they had actually completed the wall halfway up, all the way around the city, and how the enemies of Nehemiah, by the time it reached that sort of midpoint in the project, they had become so incensed by the, the change, the potential change in the landscape, that they begin to press even more harder and begin to make threaten, threatening uh, remarks and um, even were, were letting it be known that, that violence was, was, was a real possibility. And then at the same time, the people were losing their momentum. And we talked about what happens in those places when we start to lose our resolve in the middle of something that we've been really pouring our heart into. And Nehemiah challenges the people last week, and he, he encourages them to step forward and not to quit. They've made so much progress to not focus on the obstacles, but focus on the promise and how far they had already come. And it was, it was very powerful because out of that, there came a, a response on the part of the people, we're going to do this. We're going to finish this good work. And they started to rebuild. Here's the thing. In the middle of that process of building the wall to its completion, full height, all the way around, somewhere along the way, as they started into the, the next phase of the project to get it there, another problem came. This problem actually had to do with um, some issues that were connected to the economy, which is interesting in light of a lot of things that <laughs> we're having to deal with and when things that are on the news right now. Uh, in their case, there had been a number of things that had put people, particularly people who uh, were um, less prosperous, the poor and those in the, in the working classes, who had rallied together along with those who were wealthy and others who, had, um, who were leaders in, in Jerusalem. Everybody, Nehemiah had managed to do something pretty extraordinary. He had pulled together all the layers of society and reminded them that they were one people committed to a purpose that God had called them to. And so there's this tremendous expression of unified, common work. But what happened is this. A lot of people who started to, to volunteer their time to build those walls, it meant that they couldn't pay proper attention to their fields. It was a very agricultural society. Most people had either a farm or a vineyard. They worked in the vineyards. Uh, so they didn't have a lot. By, by pouring all of their energy into working on the building of the wall, many of them were neglecting their own personal interests. They could, they could, and then on top of that, there were the, the enemies that were consistently creating problems. And then one more layer occurs. There's a famine that hits the land. The famine meant that a lot of people, because again, that was a famines and, and locusts and, and uh, were, were huge issues for people who depended on um, the natural the, you know, their, their farmland their, the, to survive, their sustenance. And so to have a famine hit on top of, uh, of all the other things that they were having to deal with, many people were plunged into a point of desperation. They couldn't pay their taxes. They couldn't pay their mortgages. What was occurring was 
And evidently, this, Nehemiah wasn't aware of this un, because he was so focused on the project until, until it was brought to his attention. But a lot of people were being taken advantage of. So that even though everybody was working together to build a wall, some of the ones who were wealthier among them, in this case, were actually um, exploiting the situation a little bit. And in their case, some of the people had gotten in so much trouble that they were having to sell off their land or... In, in the worst case, they were actually having to sell their, their children into what, what they called slavery, which we would identify as indentured servitude, where you could buy them back, but it was like they were going to work the land for the person who you owed the money to. And so this, is, this, was, a, <laughs> this was bad, and there was a tremendous amount of tension on this. They, it's with that in mind, Nehemiah 5, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 5, talk about it. They come to Nehemiah, verse 6 of Nehemiah 5. We'll look at it together and just kind of read through this. So that's, that's the setup for what we're about to look at. It says that um, when I heard their complaints, what I just talked about, you know what Nehemiah says? Do you know how angry I became? He says, I was so angry. I was very angry. I was white-hot angry. He says, and, and, and then notice, though, but after thinking, after thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. You know what I told them? I told them this. I said, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Now, according to the book of Leviticus, which was the law that they had sort of lived, were committed to living by, they were not to charge their countrymen interest. It, it, because they were a people who had come out of slavery. They had been enslaved in Egypt, and they were redeemed by God. And so from that point on, God says, I want you to remember that you who were once enslaved ought not to enslave one another. Well, they were playing this very loosely. And Nehemiah is upset. He says, then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. And I look at verse 8. And at that meeting, I said to them, we are doing all. Oh, listen, we are, do you understand what's happening here? We are doing everything in our power to get ourselves set free from those who are oppressing us. And all, we're doing everything we can. And our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, he says, but here you are selling them back again into slavery. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. But then Nehemiah says, but I wasn't satisfied with the silence. Then I pressed further. I said, what you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by our enemy nations? Here we are saying we represent God, God is with us, and we're acting like this. He says, I myself, listen to me, as well as my brothers and my workers have been lending the people money and grain. But now, let us all, he includes himself, let us all stop this business, in their case of charging interest. You must, listen, restore the fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day, now, and repay the interest you charged when you lent them the money, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. And they replied, we will. We will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. And then I called the priests and, I, and made the nobles and officials do what they had promised. I asked them. I, did not, I was not simply satisfied with their agreement. I took it one step further. And in their day, this would have been like a covenant oath. And he said this, I shook out the folds of my robe. And I said this, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you, shake you like this from your, your homes and from your property. May God judge you. And the whole assembly responded, amen. That is, so be it. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And then Nehemiah adds a little piece. 
He says this, you know, for the entire 12 years, look at verse 14, when I was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors in contrast had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine, besides their 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I, I did not act that way. There's a lot for us here. I would like to apply it. One of the things we see from the very beginning here that I think is noticeable is that Nehemiah responds to this situation in which he's very angry in a way that is, is a great example for you and me. It's actually very New Testament in the way in which he, very Christ-like in the way in which he, he actually deals with his anger. And so I want to put this on the board. I want to suggest, and we'll just call this the first thing, that the ability to manage our anger is a mark of maturity. Notice in verse 7, Nehemiah says, I was, verse 6, I was very angry, but then he says, but after thinking it over. So what he doesn't, do you see what he did not do? What he did not do was just react. He didn't just get, allow his anger, which was in this case a legitimate, really a legitimate anger, but he didn't just go fly off the handle and get reckless. There, notice that phrase. He says that I, after thinking it over, I mean, there's a real sense that he creates some space between his emotion and what he decides to do, which is a great example for all of us because so much of our problem occurs. Is, this has a lot of times, this is where relationships really break down, especially in the home where sometimes we feel somehow in our own way, I don't get it, but I see it happening, more permission to be casual with our words and therefore at times more reckless with our words because somehow that's okay. And yet in our anger, we can say things that we will deeply, deeply regret and can do real harm and wounding. And one of the things the Bible reminds us of in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 4.29, there's a great verse about anger. It says this, be angry, but do not sin. Do not step across the line in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That is, do not allow your day to end and have that anger just sitting in your heart. The Bible's reminding us that if at all possible, we are to deal with this. It's interesting because in, in Ephesians 4, he's actually quoting, the, the apostle is quoting Paul from an, a psalm, the fourth psalm. And in Psalm 4.4, it says this. Notice the similarity. Be angry and do not sin. Then the psalmist says this. In fact, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Now, that's a great, that's a great, has a great value to it. You know, take the time to let this be. Remind yourself of what's important. Um, but here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that uh, this has happened to me? A couple times I've tried to do this. I didn't react. Uh, I'm trying to lay this aside. But the more I start thinking about it, instead of getting better, <laughs> I start getting madder, right? And before long, I start thinking, I'm reminding myself of the conversation that happened, or we can remind ourselves of what was said, what we wish we would have said. How did I allow myself to be talked to like that? We start envisioning what we're going to say, right? What we're going to do about this. And that's what makes the following verse, the fifth verse in Psalm 4, I think even more important. We'll put this up there as well. It falls right on the heels. It says this, offer the sacrifice of righteousness, right? 
and put your trust in the Lord. In other words, make a decision to choose a right course and then lay the situation into the Lord's hands. That is one method, one, one way of dealing with anger. Trust God and go to sleep. Leave it there. Let that ang- don't let that anger seethe inside. Don't take a chance of letting anger become a root of bitterness because the Bible says a root of bitterness defiles many people. More than one family has been corrupted by a root of bitterness at a deep, deep level because the pall of negativity begins to make its way into a household. And I'm just using a house as an example. It can happen in other, other environments, but that's one that hits really close to home. Now, having said that, Nehemiah's example also reminds us that just being angry and thinking something over does not mean that we accept things passively. Because one of the things that Nehemiah models there is that he says, you know what, after I, I was very angry, I made a decision that I wasn't, I wasn't going to react. I, I, I thought about what, was, what, was, what I wanted to do. He says, but then I made a decision to, to call everybody back in because we needed to have a meeting. And it says that he began to really press into this. And I look at that and I go, wow, you know, he's refusing to simply just um, ignore what is a clear problem. He's, he goes up to the people and he says, look, you, he says, again, in that seventh verse, he says, you are hurting your own people. That's a strong word. You're hurting them, you're squeezing them, you're overcharging them. And then he says, what's worse, he says in verse eight, he says, and you're doing the very thing that we're trying to stop our enemies and our oppressors from doing, you're doing it. Do you know what that makes us look like? Is we're not doing this so that somebody else can oppress the people. He goes, get a hold. He's mad at that point, right? And then he says, and then I pressed further. I didn't stop there because they all, nobody said anything. He says, but I didn't stop there. I pressed even further. And let me suggest that there are times, loved ones, when we need to, and here's number two, when we need to press into things. When simply saying, well, you know, um, that's just kind of the way it is. You know, no, no, no. We, there are times where we are not to pretend or ignore an issue. There are times where we need to talk about it, where it needs to be put on the table. It's about, it's about see, I see this beautiful balance. He is not reacting, but he is not ignoring. He's not becoming, in our vernacular, we might call it a, 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 a codependent. He's not, he's not simply pretending there's no issue when there's a real problem going on. And we talk about this all the time, about the value of just being honest and open and how there's a time that we need to, to confront something. There's a time when we need to, to talk about it. There's a time when what's happening needs to be acknowledged as not a good thing. And we need to address this. And, there's a t- and that's what Nehemiah is doing. There's a time, how can we say this, to... Use the fuel or the energy of a legitimate dissatisfaction as a means of stimulating a point of breakthrough or a preferred future for what what we're dealing with. In other words, just that anger with what's happening can be, if if properly held can be actually a benefit because it will it will be the power that causes a change to occur that needs to happen. And frequently, it's out of our discomfort that we respond to things. It's out of the, 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 the 
the point where we say, I, I cannot go on like this. Now you think about it. In the greatest, I think, the greatest story that Jesus ever told, the, the one that I love the most is the parable of the prodigal son. A few weeks back, I talked about, about that in depth a little bit when we were talking about something else that was going on with Nehemiah. But you remember that one moment when Jesus is describing the story? When it says that the, because remember how prodigal had, had said, Father, just give me everything as I'm heading out of here. I said, boy, you bore me to death here. I got to live my life. And he gets his inheritance now, cashes it in, enjoys the high life for a while, but the economy has a downturn. And before long, he's got no money. And all the people that he had been hanging with, nobody was with him anymore. He couldn't find a job, couldn't go home in his mind. He's stuck in a far country. And what does he do? He looks for work any place he can get it. And Jesus says, and he used a paintbrush to paint, to, to paint it so beautifully for someone who was a Jew. There could have been no more sense of how low someone has fallen. For he said to them that the boy finally found a job working for a pig farmer. And in working with the pigs, as he shoveled the mud and the pig feces, that he had to suffer another indignity because the farmer, of course, wanted to keep his investment going, so the pigs needed to be fed well. He himself barely had enough, and it says that he found himself at moments even envying the very food the pigs were eating. Until he came, Jesus said, to his senses. And he said to himself, what am I doing here? I will arise, and I will go home, and I will return. I will arise and return. And he began his journey home. There are moments where we say, I, I, I can't, this is, no, this is not God's will for me. There, I'm, I will arise. I will, this is no longer going to be the way that it is. I will not accept this anymore. I'm making a change. And in those moments, these moments where we go, Lord, you know, I, I'm, I'm angry maybe, um, maybe I'm afraid, whatever it is, but I take that, that dissatisfaction and it busts us out into a new thing. It, so how can I say it? Sometimes our adversity and the, the seeming difficulty that we're having to work through is the primer that pushes us into points of breakthrough because we're willing to move when we weren't willing to move before. And, that's, and, and I look at that and I go, there is a time when God's saying, you need to press. You need to respond. This is the time. The metal is hot. It's moldable. It can be shaped. There are moments, not every moment's the same. That's why there are these moments in our lives where when we feel, to use another kind of example, when the waters are rustling, and the Spirit of the Lord is present, and we're hearing his voice, that we respond to it and take the risk. We step out, and what happens is often that's where the breakthrough occurs. Now, and that leads to this third piece here, which is this, that our love for God will ultimately and inevitably challenge us to evaluate, like we just said, our work and our, and our life structure, right, and our life choices. So that, I, okay, what am I trying to get at? Nehemiah, let's just use this example. Nehemiah is, he points out that, you know, I had a situation occur, he says. Um, there had been a custom of men in my position, remember those last couple of verses, where we had become accustomed to getting uh, more from the people than we probably should have. He says that we had, there had been a tradition of squeezing people that had been entrenched. 
And he said, essentially, that I decided that I was no longer going to take advantage of what had been a way of being for someone in my position. I decided that that was not going to happen for me here. Because uh, in other words, what he says is, he, I, I decided I wasn't going to do it. And I'm going to point this out, that there, just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. Just because something is permissible does not mean it's right for us. And Nehemiah says, you know what I decided? That there are some things I needed to say no to. And in his case, it was pretty clear because what had happened was there had been, a, again, this custom, this tradition of squeezing the people to, so the administrations were taking advantage of the people. It was what we call institutional graft. What that means is this. There's an entrenched part of a system that people, and this is especially true in, in, in countries where it's difficult to get anything done without paying people off. And um, when, a, when a situation occurs where something is so entrenched that even the exploited understand, well, that's just the way things are done. That's how it works, that you have a problem. And Nehemiah is saying that this is not why we did this, to have this happening. We will not accept this. And, the re and he says, and it will start with me. He goes, we did not trust God for this so that we can simply have another version of a kind of oppression. No, it will not happen. And in his case, he says, I decided to set an example. And so I said no to what was something that I could have had. And now, and it was his choice to do it. But you know why he says he did it? Not because anybody made him do it. You know why he did it? Look at the very bottom, the very bottom. What does that phrase say? Because I feared God. That's what he said made him respond. What happened is, that, and what do we mean by the fear? He, because he's basically saying it's because I had um, the idea of a, of a healthy fear of the Lord, because his opinion and position in my life is what mattered most to me, that the opinion of God was preeminent in my life, that I, that I made a decision so that God's desire became the critical piece for me as a man, as a leader, that what, it didn't matter. This is what Nehemiah is saying. It didn't matter what the culture defined as normative. What mattered is what God was saying to me and who I was with him. And so he says that, that I decided to not simply accept the custom, but to willingly choose not to do it. And I'm going to suggest that that's what, that is a great example of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about living as a person in the kingdom. A lot of times we hear that phrase, what's he talking about? Living as one who always is aware of the fact that, that our allegiance is to the king. So that my, my, my love for Christ or my life structure is not simply, I'll put it this way. It's not like, so it's not just a, a set of things I believe. It's not just like a religious piece that I, I do a couple of hours a week, uh, maybe three weekends in a month. And then I do my duty, and, and now I've got that piece taken care of. The spiritual piece is taken care of, and I'll go on and live my life. That is not the way Jesus talked about following him. He did not say, do that. What he said was, the kingdom of heaven is like a leaven that permeates an entire lump of dough. He says it's, it's to be integrated into every detail of our lives. So that every aspect of our life, and that's what I love about this, whether it's my work life, my personal life, my family life, my hobbies, 
that I bring the king with me wherever I go. So that any area of our lives, he has a right to say something about it. Because it's not just a piece of who I am, the spiritual part. It's an integrated part of everything we do. And as we live with that type of a, of a melody in our lives, when the music of heaven is playing in our lives, it will correct us at times. And it will be times where the Lord will say, you know what, don't do that. There are times where we get, we get, we get reminded that for you, I need to pull off on this, or I need to give that up, or I need to yield this, or I want you to go a different way. Because remember who you are. Who you are. Nehemiah says, I remembered who I was. I was one who lived in the healthy fear of God, and it affected how I made my choices. That's the effect. And, then, and this leads to the last piece, which is this. Not only is it to mean that I'm going to say no to things, but it also means that we're going to say yes to things. Number four, there are times when we are to be reminding ourselves that we are to be a people. And I like this. Again, I, I, it's not just about what, what we're not to do. It's about what we get to do. It's about saying yes to God. And, and you remember that part when the people said, the Nehemiah says, listen, will you do this? And what do they say? They say, amen, we will. Amen, yes, let it be so. So be it. Or yes, Lord. That's what it really means. Yes, Lord. We will do it. We will do it. We will respond. And there are these moments where we get to choose how we're going to live, how we're going to how we're going to love, how we're going to treat people in our lives, how we're going to how we're going to sort of try to model the Lord in our in the midst of this this life of ours. And we get to decide. You know, Nehemiah says he says in that in that what that I I because I feared God, I did not act that way because I loved and reverenced His higher ways. I lived a different kind of life, a better kind of life. Loving God, embracing Christ will affect the outcome of our life, and it will affect the way we live it. It will affect the way we live it, because even when we don't do it right, we can't just pretend we, didn't, we did it okay. God will deal with us to respond, to not disconnect, to not say, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord, but, but say, but you're irrelevant to the choices I make in my life. That is not his way. He, can, he will love us through every failure. He does, he has a record of it. Every one of us who's known him knows that that's how he is. And yet at the same time, we are never, he will never let us settle for something that is clearly not going to be helpful or a blessing or is going to hurt and damage us. That's his way. He calls us to not just say no, but to say yes to a better way. Now, that leads me to this final thing. There's a reason we picked the song that we're closing with. And that song, there are times where it's loosely connected. This one is spot on. It's called the opposite way. And sometimes the opposite way is the higher way. The opposite way, see, here's the thing. It goes back to this. Just like Nehemiah, Jesus made the same decision, just in a little different way. Just like the people made a decision. We're going to do it your way, God. Jesus in the garden, what does he say? He says, look, I don't want the cross. Remember we talk, I don't want the cross. I don't want it. But nevertheless, Father, if it's possible, please take this from me. Take this cup from me. I don't want it. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what he wants to run away from, he steps into. And there are times where God, part of us wants to run. We want to go this way, that way. But God says, go the opposite way. There are times when the culture's all going this way. And we're, we just we want to walk with everybody. The Lord says, you go the opposite way. Nehemiah says, I'm going the opposite way. 
how to be in something in a humble way, but not simply be absorbed into it, but to live as one defined by another reality, the reality of the king. He set the example for us. Jesus laid the marker on the ground when he went through the cross. What he did not want, he moved into. And because he went into the cross, it brought him into the grave, but through the grave. And because he did it, you and I can go through the grave as well. But how we live is our choice. And there are times where the higher way is the opposite way. Let's pray. Okay, Lord, we, um, we sit with these things. We, we ponder them. We, um, we welcome your truth into our life. And we pray that you would have permission. Again, the irony is that you're the God of eternity who waits for us to give you permission to move. That's hard to understand sometimes. But you will not force your way on us. You wait to be invited. And I pray, Lord, that we would invite you to challenge us into all the places, the unworthy places, the stubborn places, the angry places. Teach us your ways, O Lord. Help us to walk like you walked. Sometimes, Lord, we get to these places where we've said enough is enough. I'm going in the opposite way, your way. Not just what I can get, your way. Not just how I feel, your way. So as we, as we settle this into our spirit and into our heart, may these little pieces build a life in us that produces health and blessing and growth in a number of ways for those born and unborn, those we know who are yet to be known by us. May we come with the kingdom's touch, wounded healers in Jesus' name. Pray for your blessing over our time of giving as a people. May we honor you as a church and over this song, which is our ending exclamation point. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.